We're going to talk about tune up your teaching and how we can use Christian song for discipleship. Um, let me just introduce myself uh, this morning. My name is Daniel. I uh, have been in full-time ministry now for about 20 years. Uh, four years of that was as a lead pastor, and now about 16 of that has been as a minister of music or worship leader or music director. Um, and so I'm currently at Welch College, and I'm also the music director at uh, Emmanuel Free Will Baptist Church, where church plant in Gallatin. And so um, I went, uh, I directed music at Gateway Church in Virginia Beach for about 10 years. And so that was an established church, the Christian school, and I had volunteers coming, coming out of my ears, you know, didn't, didn't know what to do with them. But now I'm in a church plant, and it's like, you know, I have to set out chairs and stuff, so... It's uh, kind of seen the whole spectrum. Uh, my wife's from North Carolina. She's from Kinston, and uh, we met at Southeastern, and, and um, so yeah, so we've been in North Carolina and Tennessee and Virginia, all over the place. Uh, if you want the notes, you can get them uh, there at the QR code. So as we think about uh, this idea of using music as a discipleship tool, I think we would all agree that we generally talk about using music for worship. And so what I'm suggesting, I understand, is different than what we're used to. We, we generally think of uh, music as being a time where we sing and we sing praises together and we sing unto the Lord as an act of worship. And uh, sometimes we say things like it prepares our hearts for the message, for the preached word and that kind of stuff. Um, and so I'm not just coming up with some harebrained idea. Uh, I want you to know I have asked over and over, is there biblical warrant for using singing for discipleship? Uh, so what I'd like to do is uh, just go through some scripture passages where we do see music used for teaching, for instruction. Uh, the first, and you may have thought of this one, uh, is Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, we're going to use, we're going to come back to this passage at the end, and we'll kind of uh, break it down. Um, but uh, I think... Uh, I think this, you might could say this is a key text for this idea. If you look there, teaching and admonishing one another. The word admonish simply means to warn. Um, it means to call, uh, to, to call under correction, to warn. And I've said before that this verse is one that keeps me awake at night. Um, and I've had to ask myself, as, a, as, a, as one who plans music in church and selects songs and leads our people week in and week out in the music ministry, do my song choices teach and admonish? Do they teach and admonish? Do, do the songs that I've picked, are they providing a context where the word of Christ is dwelling richly in us? Um, and it's, a, it's, it's an important question to ask. I would suggest to you that this idea of music uh, as a teaching tool is actually 
uh, really deeply embedded in Christianity and even in its roots all the way back into the Old Covenant. Um, let's look at some other references. Uh, kind of a sister passage here. We'll, we'll hit this one and, and move on. Uh, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So there's that formula, the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So there, there's, there's the praise. There's like the to the Lord part. But we also have this addressing one another. Addressing one another. Um, that word addressing, you can actually see it used in other places in Ephesians. Ephesians 4.25 and Ephesians 6, uh, 19 through 20. It's on either side of this passage. Um, Paul is actually using this word in the idea of speaking out God's truth. He's telling, God's, telling forth God's truth. And so addressing, uh, we are to use our songs to speak forth God's truth and, and to speak forth to one another. Uh, so our songs are, you know, sometimes we, you hear the phrase like an audience of one. Um, well, our songs are not just an audience of one. Our songs are like to one another too. We are to minister with songs. I like the term, the idea of music ministry. Um, so music is not just for worship and praise. Music is ministry to one another. And we have Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 as the foundation there. Here's another one. Uh, Hebrews 2.12. I will tell of your name to my brothers. This is actually, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 22, and it's a messianic song. And this is actually the psalmist... Uh, in a messianic um, uh, setting. So this is now Christ speaking forth. Actually, some of the early church fathers thought that when Jesus sang a hymn with his disciples, that that was, that this was, that that was the literal uh, fulfillment of this prophecy, this messianic song. So the writer of Hebrews is, is, um, is quoting this. And he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the con congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews actually says, I will sing your praise. Where the psalmist said, I will praise your name. But the writer of Hebrews actually, uh, and once again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so it's authoritative, actually uses the word sing instead of praise like the psalmist did. I will sing your praise. Uh, let's nerd out just for a little second here and have a little lesson in Hebrew parallelism. All right, uh, we're all artists in here, or you at least like music. So a little lesson and how the Psalms work and some Hebrew parallelism will be good for us. Uh, so this is quoting a Psalm. I've actually put um, the parallel phrases in here. Uh, so you have, I will tell of your name is parallel with, I will sing your praise. So it's the, the subject of the sentence doing the action. I will tell of your name, I will sing your praise. And then the second line is, to my brothers, is parallel with in the midst of the congregation. So the brothers and the congregation, that's, that's parallel. And there's all different kinds of parallelism. Uh, but one thing that, regardless of how, if you were a Hebrew scholar, how you decided to label this parallelism, the one thing that you could notice is that the psalmist 
And then the writer of Hebrews sees the idea of telling your name as being functionally, if not the same, at least similar to singing your praise. And so back to my thesis here that song is not just used this way to praise the Lord. It's also used to tell forth his truth or to tell his name uh, or, or to tell of his name. Um, and so, once again, singing is teaching. This is just another example here. Psalm 89.1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Once again, very similar. If we, if we break down the parallelism here, I will sing is being equated with, with my mouth, I will make known. And so the idea of the, the Christian and the church singing, um, there is a instructive, evangelistic um, function that's going on while the church sings. We're, we're declaring his truth. We're not just kind of gathering together in our little holy huddle to get warm fuzzies with music and go, woo, all right? We're not just gathered to get warm fuzzies. We're gathered because we want to let the word dwell richly in us, right? And here the psalmist says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. And with my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. So steadfast love of the Lord and your faithfulness to all generations are parallel items here. All right, let's keep moving. And once again, I'm trying to show you that the idea of using song, not, merely, not just for worship, but as a discipleship tool, as a means of, of instructing the church, is within the ethos of Christian faith. The psalmist says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to my word. This is cool. This is a cool passage. So the psalmist is actually singing. You, you, you know the psalms were meant to be sung, Right? There was the songbook of ancient Israel. Um, uh, Hippolytus, who's a church father, uh, second century, he actually said that uh, he thought the Psalms uh, were, or there's five books in the Psalms, and that he believed it was authoritative, like the five books of the Pentateuch. And, and so Hippolytus, again, a, a church father, uh, he, he, he actually suggested that uh, the Psalms were an authority for us that, that when we sing them, they instruct us like the law of the Lord, like the Pentateuch did. Now, Apolitus is not authoritative. He's, he's just a, a Christian like you and me, uh, but we can still see how Christians throughout the ages have, have thought about this. And so this psalmist, this is authoritative. He says, listen to me, listen to my song. I'm, give ear to my song. I'm, I'm going to sing a song to you. And while I sing, oh, my people, I want you to listen to my teaching so he actually calls his song a teaching. He says, incline your ears to the words in my mouth. Uh, here's another one. Now this one, I had to put Psalm 60H. Because this is the heading that comes before Psalm 60. Um, when you flip through your Bible, there are headings that um, many of the Bible publishers have helpfully added. Uh, here and there. So, you know, you might get over to 1 Peter and, and you know, there's, you know, eight verses and there might be a heading that says 
the holiness of God's people. And, you know, that's the passage where Peter t- quotes Leviticus and says, be holy for I'm holy, or, you know, or something like that. But over in the Psalms, um, in your Bible, there are headings that are not added later. They are actually authoritative. They are actually the original headings from the authors, mainly David. And this is one of them. And here's what, he, what it says. It says, To the choir master, according to Shushan Iduth, a miktam of David for the instruction when he, instrove, uh, when he strove with these bad guys and lots of bad, crazy things happened. Okay? So, but the focus is here, this a miktam of David. Uh, Hebrew scholars don't actually know what a miktam is. Um, uh, so... There's six psalms that say that they're a miktam. Uh, five of them are actually clustered together here around chapter 60. But we don't, we don't actually know what a miktam is. But here, it, it may have been a song for a certain setting, or it may have been um, uh, a, a song that was composed a certain way, or maybe it was for some certain instruments. We just don't know. We don't know what a miktam is. But it is a miktam that's to be used for instruction, yeah. Um, so, once again, there's a heading to this psalm where it specifically states, hey, listen, this song is to be used to teach the people of God. It's for instruction. Um, I love this one. Um, this one is not as much uh, for instruction, uh, but more for encouragement. Maybe not as much for teaching um, as much as it is for sometimes you need a song in church to just encourage you and to give you hope. Proverbs 25, 20, whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day. Um, You're cold, you're freezing, you're destitute, and someone comes beside you and puts a big coat on you and warms you and says, come, c- come with me, I'll, I'll help you. Um, and that's like um, the one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Um, just a, uh, a verse that um, helps us see music is, could be used for encouragement too. Um, Deuteronomy 31. All right, so this is where it kind of all begins, Christian song being used for instruction. I wish, maybe we should have just covered Deuteronomy 31, that's it. It is a very rich passage. Uh, Now therefore, this is God speaking to Moses. Write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness." For it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know that they are inclined to do even today, before I've brought them into the land that I swore to give them. 
So Moses wrote this song the same day, taught it to the people of Israel. Moses' last official act as God's prophet and as the leader of the children of Israel was composing this song, teaching it to the children of Israel as a testimony, um, and then uh, a couple chapters later, he dies. Um, this is probably where Paul is getting the idea of music being used to teach and admonish. The idea of warning. In fact, if you go back to Colossians 1, remember so Colossians 3.16 had the teaching and admonishing with all wisdom. If you go back to Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul actually talks about the apostolic ministry of proclaiming the gospel. And he uses that exact same teach and admonish with all wisdom to describe, but he flip-flops it. He says, admonish and teach in all wisdom. That's back in uh, Colossians 1, I think it's verse 28. 16 actually comes to mind too. Uh, numbers do weird things in my head. Um, but he actually used that to describe his, his apostolic office, his, his role as an apostle to proclaim Christ and to teach the people and to write the scriptures and to proclaim to them the excellencies of Christ. So his, his verbal ministry, he says the goal of it was to admonish and teach in all wisdom. And then he turns around and uses the same phrase over in Colossians 3.16, which we read, uh, using psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to teach and admonish in all wisdom. And so it, it seems that this idea of warning, admonishing, it's, it's, a, it's a strong warning or to call someone into correction. It seems that that has its roots here in Deuteronomy 31, where God says, write this song and teach it to them, and it is going to testify against them, and it'll be in their hearts and in their mouths, and they won't be able to forget it. And when they, when they go into the land and turn and serve other gods, this song will warn them. Um, and, and I'll be honest with you, there's, there is something um, very comforting, actually something very scary while being very comforting about that. Um, I hope that the songs that I select as a minister of music, worship leader, etc., I hope that the songs that I teach, that that child who's coming up through our church that when they decide at the age of 16 or 18 or whatever to go away from the Lord and go down to a path that is unto destruction, unto evil, I hope that the songs they learned at Emmanuel Free Baptist Church in Gallatin, Tennessee will haunt them. I hope it'll haunt them. And I hope they will serve as a testimony uh, that the, the truth that Brother Daniel taught our congregation with these songs, that they will serve as a testimony to them um, in the days ahead. Um, this is a, a bit of uh, Moses' song uh, over in Deuteronomy 32. Let's, let's skip it for now for sake of time. Um, we're, we need to move right along. Okay, so oh, we just went in for a deep dive. So, so I'll come back up for air and we can get a little more practical here. So... A few questions. What does Colossians 3.16 teach us about discipleship through song? I, I told you that we would attempt to 
Uh, we're looking for a biblical warrant, and I feel like we have that. I brought you through this string of, of texts. So we do have a biblical warrant that song can be used for instruction. But let's kind of uh, dig down into Colossians 3.16. And uh, if you're looking for a little sermonette uh, from a passage, yeah, you can steal this. Um, this is original with me, and you can have it. Uh, you can take it home, and you're like, I got my sermon for this Sunday. You'll be good. I think I got five points here. The first we have is the content of our song. The content of our song. What should our songs be about? The content of our song is simply, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Um, Listen, our songs should not just be about the Bible. Our sermons should not just be about the Bible. The instruction that we give our kids, you know, shouldn't just be faintly associated loosely with the Bible. No, the content of our songs should actually be the scriptures dwelling in us, dwelling in us. The scriptures are sounding forth through our songs and the scriptures are dwelling in us. The word of Christ is dwelling in us with our songs. So what is the content of our songs? It's the word of Christ. What is the, uh, the means of the word dwelling? Okay, so if the word is to dwell with us, then how does it do that? Well, that's through teaching and admonishing. That's, that's the mode, that's the method. Um, and... Because there are, there, are some, there are some songs that don't teach much. Um, uh, there, there are songs that are used for different purposes in life. You know, uh, we sing happy birthday. And happy birthday isn't intended to teach and admonish. It's, it's celebratory. There's nothing wrong with a song that's celebratory. Uh, and by the way, I, I, uh, I think there's going to be some songs that we sing within our church that um, are... Uh, uh, they teach and admonish, and they are songs of praise or celebration or rejoicing. And there's other times where we're teaching and admonishing, and they're going to be songs of, say, reflection on, say, the Lord's Supper. Um, they're going to be teaching and admonishing, and they're songs of conviction that convict us of our sin. That's a good thing, too. Um, and so they're going to, our songs are going to have different um, uses within our service, and, and that's fine. Um, but by and large, they should be teaching and monitoring. That's the means of the word dwelling. What is the audience of our song? Well, one another and to God. So Colossians 3.16 covers them both for us. So point number three, if you need your sermon for this Sunday, the audience of our song is one another and to God. Uh, we're not just singing songs to an audience of one. We are ministering to one another in the same way that the preacher stands up and he preaches and he, and he employs us to, to look here at this truth and to make life choices and to change our life. Um, I believe our songs should and could, could and should do that. So the audience of our songs is the church and God. Uh, th- this one I just got real lazy on. I just didn't even, you know, I just went with what is the wisdom of our song? All wisdom, uh, you know. Uh, I, I tried to come up with a good synonym to be like the, I don't know of our song, but I just had to stick with wisdom, right? The wisdom of our song. When Paul says in all wisdom, um, 
This is not an appeal to earthly wisdom or to worldly wisdom. I think you get that. But the use of the word all wisdom is a little, is a little difficult. Um, and commentators have wrestled with this idea of in all wisdom. But the best explanations that I've read is that Paul is appealing to the rich wisdom of not just the apostolic message, but both covenants, all the way back to Moses. Moses as the great philosopher into David, who's writing as uh, writing psalms and making art as a wise king, to the Proverbs of Solomon, to the uh, prophecies of the prophets, that, that the word of Christ is not just appearing out of a bubble, right? So yes, it's the word of Christ, um, but it's not just like popping up into the middle of history and it's kind of standing on its own wisdom. Uh, no, uh, the, the message of the apostles and the, and the gospel is coming forth in the fullness of time after God has revealed himself and inserted himself into history all through the ages. And so the tried and true wisdom of God uh, that has been manifest throughout the Old Covenant and now in the New Covenant um, is good for us and it, and it instructs us. Uh, if you go back to, um, to, to Timothy, the letters to Timothy with uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So it's kind of the idea of all wisdom or all scripture. Um, and so the earliest Christians, they would not have seen themselves as detached from the Old Testament. They saw Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and they saw a rich heritage in, uh, in, in the Old Covenant, and they weren't trying to detach or unhitch their wagon or, or whatever. Uh, they viewed that as uh, their history. This is our history. This is the history of God's people. Um, and, and so it is today. Uh, when we think about instructing in all wisdom, we're, we're seeing a long line of God uh, revealing himself. So the wisdom of our song in all wisdom. Uh, the form of our teaching, singing. Now, teaching is going to be verbal too. I mean, that's prescribed elsewhere in scripture. But in this case, the teaching is in the form of a song. Um, I don't know how much you know about uh, first century music. There is, uh, there's a, uh, we do actually have a, uh, a, a, a early Christian hymn from about 250 years after the time of Christ. It was found in uh, Oxyrhynchus, Egypt. And um, I, can, I can send you a link to that if you're interested. You, you can actually hear it because uh, with that hymn, uh, it, it's, it's, it's Trinitarian. It's, it's a beautiful hymn of praise to the Father and the Son and the Spirit, uh, third century. Uh, this hymn actually has music notation with it. And it's the, the Oxyrhynchus hymn is the earliest Christian hymn we have that actually has music notation with it. And we know how to read the Greek music notation that the Greek Christians wrote because of, an, of other documents, in, uh, extra biblical documents, where their philosophers and musicians explain how to read uh, Greek music. But music of the first century would have actually been very chant-like. Um, there's no indication of instruments being used in, uh, among the churches. Uh, we just don't have that. Uh, and so the only thing we can kind of look at is the context of maybe the centuries following. And 
by all indications, the earliest Christians didn't use instruments in their worship. In fact, in formal worship settings, an organ wasn't even used within the worship. So it would have been used for preludes and postludes, but it was not used in the music until about the year 1000. So as best we can tell, Christians didn't use instruments in worship for about a thousand years. Um, And music during this time was very chant-like. So you know how we, we write music? We write metered music, and we actually make our words fit the rhythm of the meter. And so we might say, um, uh, Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow. So you have like the meter and the feet. And then the next line you can expect will be either complimentary or the exact same thing. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. I don't know why I chose Mary had a little lamb. Out of the hundreds of thousands of church songs I know, but that's the one I went with, right? Well, so we make our words fit the tune. That's not what they did. Early music, and this would have been uh, music within Greek culture, and as best we can tell, this early Christian music, they made the tune fit the music. So they might have sung something like this as, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. They might have sung something like that. That the words, just prosodically is the term, fit the tune, not the tune fitting the words, or the words fitting the tune, the tune fit the words. Uh, Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And so they would, it would have been something like that. And they would have, they would have sung uh, no harmony, unison, um, in homes, in simple little environments. They wouldn't have even owned Bibles, right? I mean, the Bible's being written during their time. They would have been practicing that oral tradition of imparting the music and the words to their heart that had, been, that had started back in Deuteronomy 6 and we see it in Deuteronomy 31. And what Bible they would have known, they would have had memorized. And if somebody had a piece of scripture memorized that I didn't have memorized, we'd swap and, and I'd memorize what you had. Um, and so these Christians are just uh, firmly rooted in their, in their uh, Jewish uh, heritage. They're just going about humble worship, singing songs in unison, and very simple melodies. Um, And sometimes they would speak the words, and sometimes they would sing the words. Um, But that's that's how they worshiped, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The variety of our song. So what Paul does here is Paul actually opens it up that the, he gives the Christians liberty that they don't have to only sing psalms. Now remember, Paul's writing uh, about 30-ish years after, uh, 25 to 30 years after Christ, where the earliest Christians, uh, just after the time of Christ, they, they may have been singing only psalms. And so Paul actually gives them liberty to sing more than just psalms. 
hymns and spiritual songs. Now, there's a lot of debate among music uh, worship scholars what exactly those words mean. Um, I don't have time to break them down because I need to land this plane. Um, but here, we have the variety of our song. It, uh, the scriptures allow us to sing more than just the Old Testament Psalms. Uh, we can sing hymns, which are generally uh, songs of uh, ascribing praise to a deity. So, so obviously, uh, God and spiritual songs would be, um, that's, that's some, some have interpreted that as being um, uh, songs of the Spirit. Uh, spiritual songs is, is I, I don't mind saying, I'm, I don't know. There's just not enough evidence for us to know exactly what that means. Um, there's a lot of people that have made sweeping assumptions as to what the terms mean. And I think, I think we have to be careful if, if scholars are uneasy about uh, uh, sweeping um, judgments on it. Uh, but I think what we, what we can see is that we are permitted to see more than psalms. And in our hymns and in our spiritual songs, they should let the word of Christ teach us. Um, the attitude of our song with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. If you look at the references to music in scripture and then look at the references, the many references to uh, singing in um, the early church records, thankfulness is almost always in some way included. This idea of like uh, singing and there being no emotional response, that's not in scripture. I mean, why sing it? Why sing it? So the idea that there will be zero emotional response, I mean, if, if, if that's the case, then why don't we just have a reader get up and say, it is well, it is well, with my soul, with my soul, it is well, it is well, with my soul, amen. Uh, we all sit down. Because there is something that stirs in our hearts when we lift our voices together. And, and honestly, it is well with my soul. Um, it is well with my soul. Those six, those six words have probably meant so much to Christians over the past couple of centuries. Um, and because of the rich truths that are taught to us in the verses of that song. So we learn these rich truths in the verses and then we join our voices together and we declare it is well with my soul because of these truths that we learn in these verses. Um, so to say there should be no emotional response in music is, I, I just don't think that that could be founded in scripture. But I do think there is a such thing as an inappropriate emotional response. Uh, and the overwhelming correct response that we see to music is thankfulness. Thankfulness. Um, and true thankfulness is always accompanied by an attitude of humility. It is, it is bowing before the one who has done something great and saying, I do not deserve what you've done. I do not deserve your grace. And I'm not going to put myself out here and, and be a showman um, and bring all the attention to me. No, I, I humbly sing in, in humble gratitude and I'm thankful uh, for all that you've done. Uh, so we see thankfulness in our hearts as being the attitude of our song. 